From Witch Hazel on Looney Tunes and the Wicked Witch of the East in The Wizard of Oz to the sport of Quidditch in the Harry Potter series. It is as iconic an accessory as Wonder Woman's invisible jet or Batman's Batmobile. Superhuman figures have superhuman means of travel. From the earliest days of witchcraft, the witch and the broom have gone hand in hand, but why did this simple household cleaning implement rise to such prominence in modern culture? What truths lie behind the lore? In this episode, we explore the intimate and high-flying legacy of the witch's broom on Witchcraft Deconstructed. This is your resident wizard, Reverend Wade. And this is librarian and witch, Cassandra. The witch's mode of travel has endured for centuries, starting off as this malicious rumor born by fear and winding up today on kids' television shows. But we're going to be digging into where the broom comes from, how it's made, and how it might have been used by the pagan folks for more than sweeping out the dirt. So we're going to start with a number of community questions because the community comes up with a lot of awesome questions. A number of these questions are questions that they would like asked. Uh, others are genuinely people who want to know these things. And we're just going to kind of approach it from a, a holistic perspective of taking all of these questions as seriously as possible and, and applying our experience and knowledge to it. So I'm going to start off with the first one, which is, what is the broom for? What is a, what is a, what is a basom? When we're talking about a broom, we're really talking about a basom. Besom, excuse me. Besom. That's what I meant. Besom. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. For 30 years, I've been pronouncing it basom. <laughs> Tomato, potato. A basom. It sounds very proper. Could you please pass me the basom? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so what what does the basom represent? Um, so the basom, the broom, we're going to have to give you a hard time. I'm sorry. Um, it's, it's, I think, a little different than the rest of the tools on the altar. Um, I have to say that the broom was the, the first thing I, I fell in love with, right, uh, in terms of looking at modern witchcraft. Um, and one of the things long and sleek, <laughs> got all the right curves. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> it did. I picked that that basam up and I held it oh. in my arms, and it was love at first sight. But yeah, I think the the broom is it's a little different than the rest of the tools on the altar. Uh, first of all, of course, it's not usually on the altar. Um, I was about to so say it doesn't fit on mine. It it definitely does not fit on mine. Usually, it, it sets next to the altar or is carried by someone in ritual. And mm -hmm. it is the only tool that I can think of that really embodies both male and female aspects. It's a combination of both. It's almost, a, you know, we, we talk about uh, the, the symbolic great rite or performing the great rite in ritual. The broom is sort of the, the tool of the great okay. rite in a lot of ways. It, I I can kind of see that because when you're talking about the marrying, I mean, when you look at a broom, it looks like one object. But you can look at it a different way. You can look at it as two parts. And I would, I would consider the, the bottom part, which is usually uh, the shafts of, of grain that are used for the actual sweeping part as being sort of like a, the feminine aspect. And then you have a long stick or shaft that comes down amidst the mix of that. The gist here being is the bottom is sort of the, could represent the female aspect, whereas the, the, the actual handle, this, this rod of the broom being the masculine aspect. Is that, 
Am I perceiving that correctly? Because yeah, that's no, kind of that's, the same way like in a number of symbols. It's it's totally the, the meeting of male and female. And one of the things that you generally won't see in the books, if you're going to go and read about some of this stuff, one of the main aspects of a traditional broom that's taught in at least Wiccan traditions, um, and this may not be true in other traditions, but in traditional Wicca, one of the things that um, is added to the broom that you don't see talked about elsewhere is a seed at the base under the broom corn. And it's held there, and it's, it's again, it's that very symbolic aspect of creation, right? You have male oh, and female, okay. and you're creating something new from it. Oh, okay. Then that, that reinforces that idea that, that the union of, of the, the, the grain at the bottom and the shaft at the top, like they literally put like a seed there suspended in place to represent literally seed going into the feminine aspect of this object. Exactly. Um, and, you know, one of the things, and I've, I've complained about this in other podcasts, and um, yeah, I'll probably continue complaining about it because it's a small pet peeve of mine, um, is this idea that everything needs to be cleansed or you're using it to cleanse. Can you hear my fireworks? Are those fireworks? Those are fireworks. <laughs> so there may be a lot of that tonight. I'm sorry. That's all right. Um, anyway. And while the broom is used for ritual cleansing, and we'll get more into that, um, one of the main aspects of the broom in ritual, I would say its most important use in ritual, is when you are sweeping the circle, you are not just casting out energy that might have already been there that you don't want to be there, though we can talk about that more. You are also laying down the energy you are going to use to build your circle. And you are using that tool to channel that energy. And one of the, the questions we always ask in my tradition, um, it's a question for students to see how far they've come, is, um, well, and I should preface this by saying that the youngest woman in circle always sweeps. And the question is, is why does the youngest woman sweep? Can you answer that? Is it? I would say that it is potentially the most fertile. Exactly. The one that brings the most, the most um, maybe sexual feminine energy into the circle, and that their sweeping is kind of like they're blessing the fertileness of that circle. That now, is. You know, fertility, fertility being super important. Because First off, did I get it? That is, is exactly right. That is exactly <laughs> the answer you want to give. Ten points. <laughs> uh, but I can, I can see that because, I mean, I think in our society, we kind of hold sexuality uh, to 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 something that's done but not talked about you know but when it comes to your livelihood i mean your livelihood as far as as having kids particularly in a time and a, a period of time where the chances of your kids actually living to be an adult is not high having more kids being better and that your livelihood is also the fertility of your crops it's the fertility of the animals in the area uh, or the ones that you're raising, that fertility is is essential. Like sexuality was like essential for survival. That it was fun was kind of like icing on the cake, if you will. So it's it's not so much that I think the broom is a perverse symbol. I think it has a lot of different uses. But I, I think much as you've just mentioned, one of its largest uh, or, or strongest roles 
is in using sort of this uh, almost like a fertility blessing, if you will, that even if you're sweeping out the circle, what you're really saying is, is that whatever happens in this space, I expect great things to grow from it. Exactly. And the, the other thing about the broom is I think it takes on a lot more um, or many more almost human aspects, um, unlike other tools on the altar. Um, it's much more a, a sympathetic thing. Your broom is a part of you in a way that your other tools are not. It's almost like an alter ego. Um, you can treat your broom like a family member. You should actually treat it like a family member. <laughs> um, it takes on a little bit more animus uh, in the sense of being aware, maybe, in a way like I, I'm not going to talk to my athame. I'm not going to talk to my chalice. Um, I am, however, going to talk to my broom. Um, and I'm going to hold that broom very dear to me. Um, and it's a very important part of uh, relationships and the household in a way that your other tools aren't. And I find it really fascinating. Um, in general, the, the broom is just it's just my favorite thing. <laughs> I love my broom. <laughs> so I, I imagine when we're talking about having some near human qualities that you can kind of, I, I guess, sort of treat as sort of a household partner. That comes to mind, seeing the mops carrying the buckets and, you know, the top is the head, the bottom of it is sort of fanned out and they kind of create like little legs and you can see them walking. Is, is that kind of what you have in mind here as far as that sort of human comparison? Um, yeah, but again, you're supposed to talk to your groom. Um, you're, you're literally supposed to confide in it, you know, whatever's going on in your life. Um, it's especially in relation to your love life, but family as well. Um, like it is supposed to be kind of your companion in that sense. And it's supposed to lighten your load. It's supposed to sweep out the bad stuff. So when you talk to your broom and you share, it's kind of like you, sh you share the secrets with the broom that you're not going to tell anyone else and your broom will take care of it for you. It kind of lightens your burden. Your broom's your therapist. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's your is it's your magical therapist. But I think the fascinating thing about this is that these sorts of I don't even want to call it a ritual, folklore maybe about your broom is found all over the world, right? right? You know, I come from this from a Wiccan, Northern European, American perspective, right? But you find mm. this sort of treat your broom right, otherwise it can really mess up your life like across mm -hmm. the globe, like a lot of African traditions, a lot of South American traditions. There's a, there's a goddess. I can't remember her name. I believe she was Mayan and she's the, the goddess of cleanliness, but she's also the goddess of filth, right? It's sort of that idea mm -hmm. that's two sides of the coin. Um, it takes in order it in for you to have cleanliness. Some, something has to deal with the filth. Exactly. The filth is there. We all know the filth is there. That's the whole point of a broom. Mm -hmm. And the po and part of the point of the broom is to get rid of it. And that, that goes for not just the mundane and the magical, but the mental as well. Um, and so I find the, the broom to be a really fascinating tool that I think gets ignored very often, um, especially when we sort of relegate it to this idea of only being a cleansing object. I think it's a lot more than that. We don't use it constantly throughout ritual. Essentially, you use it to sweep your circle. It was, it was interesting. I was, you know, when I was doing some research for this podcast, 
um, on some of the, the more folk- folkloric traditions and the Basam in terms of witches' use. A lot of people said, I don't even really use my broom. Like, it hangs there. And I just like having it. It's decorative. It's pretty. It's, you know, it's a symbol of witchcraft. So I don't, I think a lot of people don't really understand how to use it or what we're using it for or the need for it. Yeah. And the place um, sort of in the tradition of, of witchcraft. Um, and it's just become this symbol of witchcraft, which, I mean, in and of itself is, is not a terrible thing. You know, I think of a witch, I definitely think of a broom. Um, but at the same time, it is a tool to be used. And I think it's something that can help in all aspects of our lives, especially within our, our home life, um, not just in ritual. And I really wish that we could kind of, <laughs> forgive the pun, sweep away this idea of the, tool, of the broom only being there to cleanse bad energy out again. Well, when we, when we look at the, the different folklore that's out there, and it very much reminds me of when I was younger. Like I had certain toys that I associated personalities with. And as you get older, of course, you throw out certain toys. But you can tell that you've kind of imposed your own personality onto them. Like you start to have concerns for their feelings. They start to have feelings almost in a sense, in your mind, symbolically, you have a relationship to consider throwing them out, be it, you know, whatever that stuffed animal was at the age of five, whatever. You're not only concerned for yourself not having it, but you're concerned about the feelings of rejection. I love the fact that the movie Toy Story kind of melds into the feelings of of ownership and that a child has for its toys. But and when we look at the folklore, it reflects back. I mean, you're talking about, you know, stepping on the 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 fanning out the the ends of the broom as being bad luck, or that, you know, sweeping under someone's feet is uh, is considered sort of uh, uh uh you know, the the need for sweeping out bad company or something along those lines. Um uh, th- there's just a, a sort of a number of little elements within the folklore. And then when we take a look at that that sort of thing and we take a look at how it's portrayed today, it's almost identical. Like in a number of cartoons. I mean, I mentioned Witch Hazel. Well, in that cartoon, the broom has a personality too. Like the broom is a servant of hers or or partner, if you will. She doesn't just ride it and set it to the side. It walks around and does its own thing too. And that that seems to be like a a narrative when it comes to the relationship between the witch and the broom, is that the broom is an animated object in that witch's life. And it is a friend, a helper, um, a companion of sorts, not just something that they quote-unquote hop on and ride. Well, I, I rewatched in, in honor of this podcast today, I rewatched uh, Bedknobs and Broomsticks with Angela Lansbury, which I had not seen for a very long time. And she gets her new broom. That's It's one of the opening parts in the movie. She gets her, her new broom, and she takes on these children who have come from London who are escaping the Blitz, and she's annoyed at the children because she can't go and essentially ride her new broom. So she gets the kids to bed, and she finally rips open this package, and she's never ridden a broom before. She's a newly apprenticed witch, and she has to fight with the broom. <laughs> the broom doesn't just like let her get on it and go out the window. It has its own personality that she has to like, you know, fight against and uh before she can uh get on it and actually take flight for the first time. Um it is not just an inanimate object. It it already has its own personality. It's not even an extension of her personality, although it probably is 
as the movie progresses. You can kind of see that mm-hmm. it is already its own thing, right? <laughs> it's something you've got to create a relationship with. Right. It's not something that's immediately obedient, right? right. Uh, you, you're literally kind of coming to an agreement. It's not a control. It's more like a, a negotiation of personalities. And at the end of the movie, it's so great. She's fighting against the Nazis because, of course, right. we could probably do a whole episode on uh, England in World War II uh, fighting against the Nazis with witchcraft. But she she goes out against the Nazis who have landed on the shore and she's on her broom and she has, you know, the, the military helmet on and she has a, a flag of England flying behind her on the broom bristles. And it's like she has fully... Um, accepted her power and her responsibility for you know the, this area and she rides out on her broom to deal with it and it's this really great image um you know where the the broom is doing what she's wanting the magic she's casting is doing what she's wanted it to do and she's going to go out and fight the good fight so well let's let's roll it back a little bit and talk about what what makes a a basam a basam so traditionally at least coming out of british folklore and i'm sure that other cultures do things a little differently um the broom has three main ingredients right three important ingredients i would say for a traditional witch's basam you have an ash handle you have birch twigs for the the bristle and you use willow bindings to hold it all together and then of course as i've already said in some traditions you use a seed of some sort uh, well, let's let's back it up and talk about why those three why those three specifically. Um, um, I think I think I think I, I imagine that it is that. Um, uh, what was the what did you say the the handle was made out of? Ash. Ash. I think that's pretty obvious. Ash produces um, the right kind of length of stick for that sort of thing optimally. It's also the world tree in Norse traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, you find the ash by gateways to the underworld in the Celtic traditions. Um, it's very much uh, a wood that you use uh, to walk between the worlds and to heal. Um, a lot of a lot of sure. a lot of healing properties. Sure, but even even looking at it, I mean, I, no doubt there's a ton of lore behind that tree as well that just make it also good for it. But if you take a look at the tree itself, it has like the branches don't branch dramatically. Like you can get a good length of 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 ash. Uh, from a downed piece of tree that hasn't like split in some way within a couple feet. So the branches themselves are very long and don't split very frequently, which means that, you know, if you get a branch from it, it's likely that you can just pull the twigs and leaves off the side of it and you've got yourself a good base for uh, a broom handle. Well, and I think when we talk about the broom, we can't always separate the magical from the practical. Sure. I think there's, no, no, no. I, I, agree. I think there, especially, you know, all tools have that sense of practicality. But again, the broom is a little different in the sense that it really is a very practical tool in a way that everything else on the altar is not. Um, yeah. So I think you're, you're absolutely right in that. Um, but then, you know, also, you know, <laughs> it has a lot of magical symbolism behind it. That's true. But there are a lot of trees that have um, similar symbolism. That would make for an absolutely crappy handle without without really having to work the wood. Sure. Like like oak being an example. Oak is a great wood. It's very firm, incredibly strong. You could use all of those qualities. Uh, but at the same time, as far as branches are concerned, uh, oak 
twines and twists and and branches early. You know, they split splits early. But I mean, you're right though. I mean, from a from a a lore perspective, from a spiritual perspective, and just from a practical perspective, that's a good reason why ash would be uh, desired because it's available and the sticks are rather long and and easy to to convert into a handle. So then, why willow as far as as a, a, the binding? Well, again, I think willow has a lot of symbolic meaning, but willow itself, mm-hmm. um, it's a very um, I want to say whippy type of wood. Um, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have a small anecdote uh, from my my childhood uh, that demonstrates why you should never bite a willow tree. <laughs> I was I was doing a uh, a leaf project, as I'm sure many of us did as children in elementary school, and my mother and I were driving past a, a golf course, I believe, and there was a willow tree, and my mother stopped and said, "You should go get leaves from the willow tree." Um, it would be great for your school project. So I got out of the car and I went to the tree. And if you've ever been up close and personal with a willow tree, it has these very long drapey branches, right? Willow is yeah. very much, it's a, it's a tree that... Almost almost viney, but not viney. It's yeah. just, it's very uh, cord. It's like cords. It is. It's like draping cords. Um, And so, and each one of these drapey cord-like branches have multiple leaves on them. And I thought, well, I should take a, a piece of of the branch to show how the leaves, you know, attach. And they're they're small leaves. They're very small leaves. Mm -hmm. And I did not have scissors. I didn't have a knife. But I could not get that branch to break off. It's a very wet wood. Um, Willow does very well growing right next to large bodies of water and in very swampy ground. Um, And again, that that wood is is very bindy. It's very soft. Um, It's not going to just crack off, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I stupidly bit the willow tree. Um, and willow is also a good source of, um, I'm going to say this wrong, um, acetaminophen? Acetaminophen? Yes. Right, aspirin. And aspirin, right? And man, I will tell you that if you ever bite a willow tree, it is is not a very tasty thing. I would not recommend it. I'm sure the tree did not enjoy it. I'm, I know I did not enjoy it. But I think it, it proves one of the reasons you use willow in binding it's just, it's very loose. It's easy to cord, basically, to wrap around something. Uh, you can make little bracelets from a, from a full length of, of willow. Right. Um, it's just one of, those, one of those trees that lends really well to, to uh, wrapping something. Because when it's wet, it's very loose. And when it's dry, it really kind of solidifies in whatever shape you've, you've bound around. Exactly. So very good binding wood. So then that brings us to, to birch, which the name... Basam actually comes from. It's an old Frisian word called, uh, or that comes from besma, which means rod or birch. So it, it's it's interesting because when when we're talking about saying, you know, I'm gonna get my basam or uh, I'm gonna get my broom, what you're really talking about is they say, go go grab the stuff, the wood that you use to sweep. Like we we don't oftentimes think about where the words come from, but we're really saying, go grab the pile of birch on that stick. And, and sweep. Or broom. Broom comes from a plant called broom. And it is this low-growing low shrubbery that, when harvested, comes in sort of long, long sticks. And you can easily har- harvest a lot of them from a shrub. And you put that together as for the end of a broom. So, you know, oftentimes that's, that's where brooms were created from, is that you basically went and you got 
a, a bunch of of growth from Broom and pulled that off and assembled your Broom. And that was the then competitor to the Bassam. But uh, I, I just at looking at Birch, I, so I presume here that as far as Birch is concerned, we're really talking about the sticks, that the, 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 the smaller branches that come off. Right. And collecting those and tying those to the end. Yeah. Does that sound that right? That does sound right. Um, and Birch is another one where I think it has a lot of magical symbolism. Um, there's a lot mm-hmm. of symbolism in Birch for um, like hope for new endeavors and new beginnings. Um, but again, I, I think there's also that, that practical level of going out and grabbing a bunch of birch twigs um, just functioned really well for a broom. And it was something that was easily available uh, to people, you know, who were gathering it for this purpose. So, yeah, so birch. I've got to wonder if if it's not in the reverse, because when people associate qualities with with woods, let's say, or, or any particular anything in particular, oftentimes it has to do with how it's primarily used. And then that reflects back onto the wood. So I gotta kind of wonder maybe if birch didn't inherit a lot of the qualities, a lot of the associations that we talk about from its actual common use as a means of sweeping and cleansing and and basically how it's used in its functional uh, purpose. I mean, I wouldn't argue with that at all in this case. I think that the broom in this context is a very, very old object. You know, I think it goes back centuries um you know before before it was even a broom right you know um i think this is a tool that we have used for a very long time in various forms all over the world tying sticks together is yeah that's that's some that's some age-old stuff right there right like it it doesn't really (laughs) get more nor basic than that right (laughs) right so birch you know was the the traditional european Bassam. But then you get to America and it changes. Um, and I think this is a little fascinating. I think this is this is a little bit of American folkloric history. Um, because the story around how Americans, not even witches per se, but Americans start using broom uh for brooms, is that Benjamin Franklin essentially discovered it. Um, he supposedly picked up a broom from somewhere. We don't know where. We have no idea where this broom came from. That was made from broom corn. Now, broom corn traditionally comes from Africa. It's a sorghum mm-hmm. plant. Um, so there are, of course, multiple ways that this could have come to America in that era. Um, probably a lot of them very unpleasant. Um, and of course, this is uh, a white man picking up this object from another culture and discovering it. I say that in quotation marks. Mm. But the American story, then, of course, for broom, broom corn, is that Benjamin Franklin picked up this broom from one of his lady friends in Philadelphia. And if you know anything about uh, Dr. Franklin, is that he very much loved the women, loved them very much. Um, he had, it was 80-some children, I think, by multiple women. Um, and the women apparently loved him, so power, power to Dr. Franklin. Anyway, so he picked up this broom, and it was made from... It was his way with brooms. <laughs> apparently. Um, he definitely yeah. had a way with brooms, mini brooms. Um, but yeah, so he, he picked up this, this broom that was presented to him for some reason by one of his lady friends, and it's made from this new material that he's never seen before. And on it, of course, just happenstance... 
there's a seed left over from the broom corn, which he then took and planted as a novelty. And that not well, well, the the, the broom corn that basically grows like a weed. It's it's very seedy anyhow. Right. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if there was just a ton of seeds all over it. And he was like, I can pick some of that and plant it. And that seems to be what he did. And uh, so he planted it in Philadelphia, and it was a novelty. And then uh, it sort of went from there and became the the main American source for brooms. Like, period, the end. That is what we use for brooms now. Um, Even if you just walk down to the the grocery store and pick up a a plastic broom, the bristles on the end are probably going to be broom corn. At least if you get the more straw-like bristles, not the, you know, plastic, whatever. Right, but it's it's the kind that looks today. It's the one that's, it's it's flat, basically sort of a flat design. And you have, you have what looks like hay, but it is not hay that is coming out of it. And it is wire-bound to, to the, the handle. Yeah, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing that that's persisted to this day and it is really cool so what i had what i had researched on that was very similar in that that he had requested that that the grain be brought here and that again he harvested it or uh, he planted it and he grew it and cultivated it and and harvested it and like you said it went from being a novelty to something that he kind of grew into a small broom cleaning empire so rather fascinating. Um, and especially when you consider that as far as I understand it, and now granted, I've never tried to go out and grow my own broom, but it is a fairly labor intensive plant. It's not like a plant that you just walk outside and throw some seeds in the ground and voila, broom. Um, there, there are, I think, some more steps to it than that. And it's not a crop that wields a great amount either. So you do have to plant a lot of it if you uh, want to actually make it commercial in that sense. So, uh, one of the questions that was posed is, can I can I buy any type of broom for a basum? And I, I'd like to sort of change that question to maybe what its original intent was, because I think from that perspective, they're assuming uh, basam being a uh, a title rather than a description of something that's physical. So I think I think the real question is, could a person use any kind of broom-like device, let's say, uh, as in place of a of a basum in, in ritual space? Um, I mean, sure, why not? You know, I think the the traditional basam is is very symbolic, right? And you know, it's that idea that you're tying into these very long traditions in the sense of like, well, that's what whoever used before. And so I'm going to keep using them, you know, in discussing the the symbolism of all of those things, it is symbolism, right? You know, those things have those symbolic meanings. So why couldn't you use a broom made out of other materials? Maybe you have a different purpose for what you're doing with your basam. There, There's a lot of different things to do with a broom. So, you know, I think that's that's up to the person who's using it, right? Again, that's that's the, the, the tool you need for whatever it is you're going to do. Now, that's not the answer that, you know, I think a tradition would give you, right? If you're going to go and, and learn a specific right. path. Um, that certainly not is not what my tradition would tell you. But who cares, right? If you are the practitioner and you need something different from your tool, or maybe you just don't, have access to the traditional tool. A lot of us don't. 
um, my broom was a pretty pricey thing that I saved some money up for and had made for me. Um, you can, like, I would say tr traditional, I say that in quotation marks, Bassams, um, if you're going to buy them from a craftsman, can range generally between $60 and $150, uh, depending on, you know, if you're just walking up to a, a stall or to a broom maker, um, at least if you're going to get the nice ones. Um, and that's not maybe a lot of money. I spent a little bit more for mine. But yeah, that's that's a lot more than the six dollars I spent on my <laughs> see. And th there's, you know, you can you can there there are a lot of different rooms out there. So what is this broom going to do for you? What are you using it for? You know, my broom is is I don't know. I would say it's probably a good four feet tall. Um, So mm -hmm. it's a sizable broom. <laughs> we already know I like my my large tools. Um. Right. I, right. We had the discussion. Um, I, I certainly know other practitioners who have much smaller brooms, much more handheld brooms. The cinnamon broom has come up in conversation. Um, you can generally buy cinnamon brooms around the holidays, around Halloween, around uh, Yuletide. Um, and they're not very long. They're nope. maybe the, the, the length of your arm, would you say? At least as far as the handle's concerned, yeah. Yeah, I'd say so, because we've, we've had one before. I think the important thing there is, at this point, we're not... It's, we're calling it a, a basam in the sense that of its function, not necessarily in the literal sense, because oftentimes those brooms are not made of birch. No, not at all. And their, their intention is not to sweep, and they don't have a handle. It's usually... You know, it's it's usually separated and fanned out and usually comes to a point where it's tied and then it usually extends up all of the twigs and extending up at like a two or three feet, right? And that's cool. Like you can use it as using it as a basin. You can do that. Now that said, uh, cinnamon is super strong. Super strong. Uh, and those things tend to be incredibly overpowering. And it's not that they have cinnamon in them. They're usually dressed with cinnamon I oil. I think they're usually actually pine. Their pine wood is used in those. And then okay. dressed in cinnamon. And the reason why, and that can, that can cause some sensitivity issues. Because cinnamon oil itself can be an irritant to the skin. Uh, it, is, it is hot as as a as a bark that can be powdered. If you've ever seen any of the cinnamon competitions, people who try to swallow a spoonful of cinnamon, it seems like that should be an easy thing to do because our impression of cinnamon is usually with sweet things. But the fact of the matter is, is the sweet offsets the heat of that bark's powder. And that cinnamon oil, when I was in middle school, I had a friend who would get out of school early because he would bring cinnamon oil and on days he didn't want to be at school, he'd put it around his eyes. And his eyes would, and his face would get these puffy red welts from having put the cinnamon oil on his face. And it took him, it, it, it took the nurses a little while to, to catch on to the fact of what was really happening. But the gist is that it can be an irritant and it is very strong, a lot of those are. So I would I would caution anyone in that. And, and also on top of that, when you have a symbol that you're using for cleansing that is connected with a smell, what you're creating is a, a sort of magical mind connection to the symbols of cleansing to this smell. And as a result, it, there could be some cross connections there. Like, you know, you eat a bowl of cinnamon toast crunch and you start getting the I need to clean tinglings. Um, or, you know, it... it 
it can kind of conflict, I guess is what I'm getting at. So I would say using a cinnamon broom, I, yes, you can do it. I would say do it with caution and with great intent. Um, but my point is, is that you can. Um, I, I yes. would absolutely agree with you in, in all of those things you just said. Um, I am particularly susceptible to smells. Um, I personally would not want to do that in my ritual. But, you know, in terms of can I use something different as a broom? Yes, you can. Oh, sure. I probably would not go with a contemporary cleaning broom from the grocery store with a plastic handle. But again, uh, I am privileged in having a traditional bassam, and I have access to other options. You know, you use what you have. A tool is a tool. So what if a person already has a broom? They're wanting to get into the craft. They're looking around their house like, okay, what can I convert into tools? What's the advice there as far as could a person use what they've already got in regards to a broom? So there's a lot of broom lore around old and new brooms. And I guess it depends on the context. You know, is this a broom that you have already been using to literally sweep your house? I would not recommend using the broom that you use to actually sweep your kitchen floor as your magical broom. You are using a broom to move energetic energy. We don't necessarily want to, like, hold that down with actual physical dirt of a mundane broom. I would separate my ritual brooms from my actual cleaning brooms. To that point on the flip, though, uh, in the training that I've done, the ritual broom was used to actually clear out circle space. So it would get dirty. Like, you're right. The desire isn't necessarily to use that indoors. Because I would, we would use it to sweep out the leaves. Not only was it, you know, energetically sort of cleansing the space and getting it prepared for, uh, you know, the fruit of magical workings, but it was meant to literally clean the space of rocks and debris and, and you know, leaves and such to kind of clean that space and to actually bring that back into the house and to use a broom that you use to sweep dirt and mud outside to then expect that to clean your house on the inside is kind of, it's not going to work really well. Well, but again, I I would say there's a, a difference there between ritual use and mundane use, right? Like when you are, yeah. are physically yes. using that broom to clean out the rocks and the leaves and whatever, you are still cleansing your ritual space. You, you know, that's, sure. that's a little different than, again, going in and, and sweeping out your bathroom or your, your kitchen. <laughs> you know? Yeah. My my point being was that that you wouldn't want to use the broom that you're using to sweep out the outside to sweep your inside. So if you've got a broom that you're using on the inside, leave it for the inside. I would not recommend using it to sweep out your ritual space outside, which is really what your broom then your ritual broom would be used for. Um, I would I would tend to agree. Like you could do it, but um, the functionality you'll get crossed a bit. And I'm also of the mind that that you know your ritual tools should be dedicated for ritual use um it is good to have around the house you know and we already talked about that but the idea there being is that the ritual use within your daily life is that it's your companion it is meant to also protect your home it's meant to uh help your family out when there are issues if you will is something that you can talk to like we'd already mentioned it's it's our it's our psychologist our our family therapist but that would be separate than the broom that you would use to then regularly clean your house because it's a very mundane activity. 
and you know to use your spiritual advisor, if you will, to do mundane activities really crosses that symbolism in a way that's counterproductive. Well, and that's you know that's interesting if you're going to compare it to a, another tool when we talk about um, the athame as your ritual knife. Mm. There's also the baleen that sits on your altar, which is the white-hilted knife, which is sort of the working knife of the altar, which is the the knife you use, you know, to cut your candles and to, you know, pry things out and cut wicks, whatever physical cutting needs to be done. Your baleen does it where your athame does not. Um, I've never kept two ritual brooms, one for spiritual cleansing and one for the, the actual... Uh, mundane clearing, but I suppose you could do that as well if you wanted to. <laughs> well, I was thinking more mundane clearing, like what I would have in my broom closet, such as you know the uh, the the corn broom broom, uh, the mop, that sort of thing. Whereas my ritual broom would be something very different that I would put into the house. So then the the sort of the other side of this conversation is one piece of very traditional folklore surrounding the broom is that when you walk into a new house you should buy a new broom or get a new broom it should be a quote-unquote virgin broom you leave and then it gets a little complicated because your old broom should also not be left behind so i feel like somewhere in between your your old home and your new home there there's got to be some symbolic ritual putting your old broom to rest Anyway, the, the tradition, traditional folklore is that you don't bring an old broom into a new house. I, it feels like, it feels like it, if I had a relationship with my, my, my ritual house broom, that I wouldn't want to destroy it. I don't think I'd want to destroy it either. Wouldn't want to replace it either, I don't think. I mean... So what I did with my last formal basam was when I left my old coven... I, I moved for a new job, right? I didn't necessarily want to leave my coven. That was an unfortunate side effect. I gifted the basam to my handmaiden, who did not have a basam. And it was sort of like keeping keeping the basam in the family, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't feel right bringing the broom with me to my new new home for multiple reasons. And it felt right that it should stay with the coven. And I gifted it to my handmaiden because she was a fairly young practitioner who did not have a basam. Um, and it seemed appropriate to hand it off to her. Um, also, because she was someone that I had taught, um, it was like handing my, <laughs> you know, that, that sort of, uh, what would you say, like almost the, the comfort, you know, mm-hmm. I could lend to her. Um, to her physically in a way that I wasn't going to be there anymore. She could have my Bassam and talk to my Bassam. And not that she can't just pick up the phone and not that she doesn't usually just pick up the phone. But it was a very physical part of me that I gave to her in that sense as well. So that's sort of how I handled the the last move I made. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, I, I've lived in two apartments in, in my current city. And it took me a minute to find a new broom. And in the first apartment... Uh, I lived in, I did not have a formal basam. And it wasn't until I moved into this apartment that I actually went out and bought a new basam. So I didn't really have to deal with that transition in a weird sort of get out of jail free card way, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
but yeah, that that's a that's sort of a traditional piece of room lore. That's you, again, you find it all over the place. Right, but that that also speaks to the question of you know whether or not a person could be could borrow a basam, or whether or not it could be inherited, or if it could be gifted from one person to another. And I think really the answer is it depends, right? I think it, I think it totally depends. Um, would I just pick up any basam? Like if if a, a witch was having a garage sale and had basams for sale. No, no, I absolutely. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you. exactly. Yeah, that's you don't know where that's been. <laughs> you have no idea where that that Basama has been, uh, or what it's been through, or what its baggage is, or like, who's like ridden it. Dating, exactly. Yeah, or it's... who's ridden it? Yeah, this is like my my dating life these days. But um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so right back to the broom. Yes, I, in this situation, I could see it. it it's a personal thing. So often if you're going to hand it off to someone else, there's there's probably already a relationship, should be a relationship there. Again, you're sharing a very personal item. And again, because it has a lot of symbolism, a lot of fertility activity, let's say, that somebody taking that from someone else, it would, it would have to be somebody that was close, I would imagine, or somebody who has worked with it before. You're leaving behind in your scenario a sort of built-up heritage with this tool that will then remain where that tool was being used and that somebody else will now be in charge of of continuing to use it forward in that space. Almost as if the tool is a part of the space, not necessarily having a relationship with the person or maybe the space being stronger than the relationship with the person. I don't know, but I, I think what it comes down to is it kind of depends on the situation, but you probably wouldn't want a basam that was used by someone that you didn't know. No, I, I would feel very uncomfortable with that. Um, you know, and as I, I said earlier, you know, the, the broom is a part of you in a way that your other tools are not. So when you hand that basam to someone else, it's not just the fertility aspects. It is that you are handing a bit of yourself to someone else. And you have to do that with a lot of trust, um, you know. <laughs> If you, you want to talk about, you know, people joke about, you know, oh, I, I don't want someone to get, you know, my, my nail clippings or my hair. They could do something with it. This this is one tool where I, I think that you could probably do a lot of, of magic on, on this item uh, in regards to the person who gave it to you. So I would be a little careful of that. <laughs> gotcha. As far as, as far as the use of a Basama's concern, could it be used as a wand? Can it, can it serve a dual purpose, I suppose? So one of those old witch stories, and, you know, honestly, I don't know how true this is. Um, I believe Margaret Murray talks about this in, in her treatise on witchcraft. Um, one of the, the theories of why the broom became such a symbolic part of witchcraft well there, there are multiple reasons for that and we can get into those but one of those was that it was a way to disguise your wand you know it was an everyday tool that you could use to disguise your wand um i don't know how much i put into that story um because a broom is usually much bigger than what you'd want a wand to be i mean i guess you could somehow bind a wand into it so that it looks like a part of the tool um, but I think that's some just some old witch stories that, you know, sound good. I don't know that the, the, how much truth there is to that. I had heard research that staves were converted into brooms in order to hide the staff. I've heard that as well. I've also heard um, that weavers 
their their um loom staff um i think there's an official name for it and that's eluding me right now was you know for the summoners staff like there there are a lot of these sorts of stories where you know these really traditional everyday objects you know hid or were tools for the altar that were in plain sight can you use it as a wand sure it's going to be a really big wand um, and the energy you are laying down is, I think, a much more specific energy in terms of like using fertility magic than what you might necessarily do with a wand. But you could do that with a wand. Would it be my choice? Not particularly. It feels very awkward. Seems like it would be awkward. It'd it feels be like... very awkward. It feels very blunt. It's like using a blunt instrument for yeah. what with a wand is very delicate work. I'm not. I'm not even sure how you would hold that. Like generally speaking, when you're trying to command uh, the end of the broom, where you have sort of the the outcropping of of whatever material, whatever furniture that you've you've attached to it. Again, that's that's not to a point per se. Although some some are some are more round and not fanned, right? So I kind of maybe see that as being like like a very large painter's brush, maybe if I had to stretch my imagination. Uh, or if you turn it the other way around, then you're using the handle end as sort of the extension of you. It basically energy coming out of the handles end. But the, to me, that feels very backwards, and it also seems very cumbersome. It'd be like using a spatula by holding the actual flat part of the spatula. doesn't seem like a really great way to, to deal with it. It seems like it could be awkward, but I would say that you could manage it if you had nothing else. But frankly, I'd rather just use my finger. Exactly. And again, I think that kind of goes to the misunderstanding of what the broom is used for. I mean, again, you can use most of the tools on your altar in, in different multiple ways. But I think that the broom is is much more specific in that sense. Um, and while you could, I don't think you should. I wouldn't personally. I'm totally with you on just using your finger if you have to. I feel like there would also just be a sort of a space issue in that if you're working with other people, <laughs> at least in every uh, ritual space I've ever worked in, I'd probably whack someone pretty good if I were going to try to use the broom as a wand. It just, that's, yeah, it just honestly does not seem like a practical option. There there are other things you could turn into a wand much more easily than your broom. Yeah. Well, speaking of use, how long has it been since you've flown on yours? Huh. What sort of flying are we talking about? Well, there's only one, right? I mean, I've seen all the movies and the cartoons. Every they, they fly through the air, of course, right? That's what you're talking about. When you're talking about getting high, you're talking about altitude, correct? Hey, I live on the 16th floor. How do you think I get in and out of my building? Exactly. Huge windows. Just open it and go. Exactly. I, I, I might go fly over the Hudson tonight. It's a very beautiful night out. <laughs> I, I, I kind of asked this question in jest because I feel like there are a lot of misconceptions about the craft and about ritual work and spiritual practice that are built on this reinforcement of of caricatures, of twisted caricatures of what actual actual witchcraft was versus how it was rewritten by those that 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 sort of dominated historically the situation and those were tend tend to be the people who were fearful of those who practiced witchcraft uh, and as a result what you get is these these uh twisted caricatures you get uh you know moles on the nose and it's old haggerly women and you know that sort of thing and and of course riding on brooms and 
pacts with the devil. And that and that carries forward so much that down the road it almost becomes romanticized. It transforms. We've seen a transformation of that that characterization over the years, but still there are certain misconceptions. So let's kind of dwell into the misconceptions of riding a broom. What where where did this come from? So at least in British history, I can't, and probably European history. My specialty is more on the British side of things. Women would go out into the fields with staves uh, and sticks um, and do dances for fertility for the fields and would ride the sticks. That um, You can see a lot of this in the Morris dance, the traditional Morris dancing. There's a lot of that still, um, you know, use of these sticks. And so th- those were very, very early. They weren't brooms, of course, but here are women with large staffs, essentially, doing crazy things with them out in the field. So let's let me, let me back up here. What, what exactly were they demonstrating here? I mean, what were they? What was the the goal here as far as fertility and the crops is concerned? Well, they were trying to get the crops to grow, right? You know, this is the whole um, sort of John Barleycorn myth, right? Um, mm-hmm. Cycle. Um, you go out in the fields, and uh, you know, <laughs> women astride sticks. That, that's a lot of fertility symbolism, right there. Um, again, it's it's women laying down this energy into the fields to encourage those crops to grow. Right. One of the one of the stories that's fairly prevalent, and keep in mind, a lot of these stories, in and of themselves, are are twisted. So the accuracy can be difficult to confirm. But we can imagine a time, and when we're talking about sympathetic magic, we're really talking about how do I do something that in the doing is kind of communicative to what I want to happen outside of me? And when you're talking about your crops, the idea of being able to go out to your early crops and you wanted to demonstrate how high you wanted those crops to grow. The sympathetic magic was that you would take your fertility stick, uh, be it your staff or whatever, you would ride it like a hobby horse and you would jump as high as you could in order to demonstrate to the fields, this is how high I want you to grow. And it's it's this, um, it, I kind of wonder if that kind of activity is similar to, for example, jumping over the bonfire during the, the celebrations in May. Uh, there's a lot of jumping, there's a lot of heat, there's a lot of fertility going on. Uh, and some people would argue that, you know, fertility is more for spring. I would argue that fertility is actually... Uh, you know, spring is good for stuff that is is growing in its youth, but that your real fertility, your real movement, that real test of the crop, as my father would say, knee high by the Fourth of July is how you can tell whether or not your crops are going to be your corn crops are going to be fruitful. Even amidst summer, you're still trying to encourage your crops to grow, and you didn't know if you're going to lose them or not to infestation or disease. So it is something that you still needed to encourage along from a fertility perspective. The way I was always taught it is, you know, of course, May Day, Beltane, mm-hmm. is is the, the day that you go out and you do all the Morris dancing to, to encourage the, the crops to grow. And that's also, of course, when you and your lover would go jump, jump the bonfire and go have your little roll out in the fields, enjoy yourself a nice time. And then it wasn't until summer solstice, when you knew if you were pregnant or not, that you would decide to get married. Um, because obviously that union was a fruitful union. Um, so then this time of year, right now, which is knee high by the 4th of July, is yet another time when you would go out into the fields and celebrate 
um, a more formalized union that would have begun back in May. And again, there I think there's there's a little bit of folkloric. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, romance. Romance to this, right? But um, I, I, you know, this is a a process, right? I think you're exactly right in that just because the the fields have been planted. Um, and maybe growing, you know, you still want to go out there and make sure they, they know <laughs> that they can keep growing so that you're going to be able to eat through the winter, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's the whole thing. When I describe Wicca specifically to people, not, not you know, the bigger idea of the craft or magical whatever, if I'm talking about Wicca specifically, I always say that Wicca is about feeding people and making babies. Like, those are the two main parts of Wicca, right? We're feeding Feasts people to and we're... survive and, and having and basically procreating to have your lineage survive the health of the people and the health of the land. Um, I was just reading. But I, I like that you're kind of like screwing and eating. I mean, that. <laughs> yeah. I like how that boils down, too. Um, and of course, we can have a, a conversation later on about how that plays into the modern world of, of the craft. But um, I was just reading about I, I was one of Louis XIV's mistresses, and she was one of 12 children, seven of whom died. So th- their their parents had had 12 children and only five of them actually survived to adulthood. So like you think of 12 pregnancies, like that's pretty rough. And to have seven of them not make it, like, can you imagine having seven children pass away on you? Like, that's just awful. I can't imagine having seven children. I can't. I can't either. <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine having but no, twelve. I, I could not imagine. I don't. I don't even want to think about such things as far as the ch- two children that I've got. But I get it. I totally get it. So yeah, it would be very difficult. And if anything, potentially somewhat normalized within society as something you would expect as a reason why you would want to connect with somebody and, and have lots of children, because there is that risk, right? And and lineage, I, depending on the culture, takes on a great degree of importance, because it's it's the carrying on of your information of who you are. If you believe in any sort of immortality, above and beyond the whole idea of surviving as who you are after death, then that immortality really comes to the fruitfulness of your loins. The, the carrying on of who you are through your children. And and that's that's a part of it. That's a big deal. So back to the flying on the brooms bit then. Well, so I think we have this long-standing tradition of women hopping around on <laughs> large sticks out in the fields. And then, of course, I think brooms become a symbol of women, right? They are a woman's tool back in the day. And we can talk modern feminism all you like but you know a couple hundred years ago it wasn't generally going to be a man sweeping the house it's going to be a woman and in england at least there were all of these traditions um where the broom was associated specifically with the the wife of the household mm-hmm. um and they would do things with their brooms like um it was in surrey um women would put their brooms out of their chimney to symbolize that they were not home. And it was, you know, it was to show that the wife was absent, the broom was holding her place. Oh, interesting. Um, in other parts of England, there were traditions where the woman would prop the broom up outside the front door, and it was a symbol that she was out of the house and that her husband's friends were welcome to come over. 
there are all of these little bits of like I I I I had read a bit about if if the broom was upside down basically resting on its handle's tip that that was an indication that the husband was gone and that the wife was available to play. Huh. See there there are a lot of variations. Right, right. on what on what the broom means in terms of the the married couple who were the heads of household um you know traditionally and in most cases, the broom symbolizes the woman, right? Right. Um, so then um, I can't remember the name. Of, it's like one of the earliest witch trials in England. But one of the things that she was accused of was riding a broom. And they found what, what they call flying ointment in her home, um, or what they said was flying ointment, to help her ride the broom. So somewhere in all of this, the broom as a symbol of womanhood got tied back to that sort of jumping in the fields. And I feel like there was this transition into the broom being a symbol of a witch that was really intimately tied into witchcraft. Um, I could could definitely see. And again, we have to kind of evaluate where these stories crop up. And again, a lot of these stories crop up in in the stories told by the people who were left alive after many of the witches were killed. Uh, so what you get is these stories of, imagine if you will, that your local witches really are left to, to do their sympathetic magic in a time when they can't be seen doing it. It's now outlawed. Thus, you can only really do it at night. But you still want to do it because it's, it's good luck. It's it's what's worked before. It's what makes you feel comfortable and, and less concerned about the crop that's growing. It makes you feel like you've done everything you can. And thus, it's going to be a tradition you're going to continue to do. But imagine, if you will, a neighbor that's more conservative, let's say, that is walking at night and sees a woman in her field under the moonlight jumping with a broom between her legs as if to expect to take off flying. That that is the only thing that could be assumed there. Why else would she be jumping? And thus to go back and say it's as if she was expecting to take off from the ground, that something was going to possess her, that she was basically making a runway liftoff. And thus the story can can evolve into that's what witches do. Witches fly. You know, you can see them in the fields trying to take off. They must be able to fly. Uh, and you can imagine it pretty easily that kind of story or that kind of narrative dictating down the road this idea that witches equal riding brooms. Um, as time goes on, too, in witch confessions, you see um, people who, when they confess to witchcraft, and of course, this is probably after a lot of torture, um, yeah. one of the things they'll say or is recorded as having said was that um, when they made the pact with the devil, the the devil gifted them with a broom, right? So, like, I feel like this this connection becomes really embedded in this tradition in a somewhat ugly manner, too. Oh yeah, right. Like, <laughs> this is not pleasant stuff. It, it, it is not an admission of guilt through torture. Like, if somebody comes to you and says, "Look, we'll make your death swift if you will just sign right here that you did all of these things in this prescribed way." There are going to be a lot of people that are going to fold, that are that are going to say yes, whatever, just kill me quickly, because um, they know they're not going to get out of it, and it's you know it's either quick or slow, and at the end of the day, 
you're not sure if anybody's going to care which way or another it, it, it ends because they just want you to die. And that sucks. So there are a lot of confessions of women and, and, and some men that involve the broom and involve flying, not because they actually readily admitted it, but because somebody said, this is what witches do, sign off saying here that that's what you do. Um, and witch hunters were generally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say they were the, the sanest of people to begin with. Um, and so the, the sort of the beliefs around, you know, what a witch was or what a witch did, you know, came from a lot of crazy places, I think, too, um, in that sense. So let's come back around to the flying ointment which I found particularly interesting. So you, you dig around in, for flying ointment. And I think the, the, the lore here is that the broom is, is greased with flying ointment, basically either to prevent shaving or because the application of a hallucinogenic drug to the vaginal area can provide or produce a, a high, if you will. And there's, there's a lot of room around that. And there's, there's a number of, of drugs, actually, or a number of, of herbs that are suspected as having been used. There is Mandragora officinarum, which is basically mandrake root. And mandrake root, incredibly toxic. Uh, in fact, mandrake root, for example, and we've, we've seen this, uh, you've probably heard of this, but the idea here being is because it was so toxic, that particularly collecting the roots, the roots looked like crossed legs. And sometimes the root would have like a little willy between the crossed legs. It was rather cute. But the gist here was that in order to keep people from digging up this root and using it in potentially poisonous ways, you had all kinds of, of, of scary myths. Like, for example, anybody that would harvest mandrake root would usually use animals to do it. I, I guess they would tie it around and then attach it to their dog's leash and say, run, I, for whatever means that they would do it. But the gist here was that there was this fear, this belief that harvesting it that the, that the root itself would scream and would kill anyone who, who was near it with an earshot of it and that it would condemn them immediately to hell. And I have to imagine that if I'm a government and I don't have a particularly good means of enforcing law and keeping people from using poisons, that I might spread a, a nasty superstition in order to control the populace by saying, you know, that's a magical root. It kills people. It screams. It'll kill you. It'll send you to hell. Don't touch it. It's like the kind of thing you would tell a child. Don't touch that. It will scream and it will kill you. But during that period of time, probably worked on adults as well. It sounds like one of the main ingredients used is a tropa belladonna. And it, just the name itself is pretty cool. Like a tropa comes from atropos, which was one of the fates. And it was particularly the fate that cut the thread where you would die. You would determine how long your life was. And this is an incredibly toxic plant. So it's not surprising that, that, they, that they named it beautiful woman, which is where the belladonna word comes from, Italian for beautiful woman, but that it's named specifically after the muse that cuts the line, cuts the cord in your life. Basically saying, if you take this, it's going to kill you. And that's the reason why this is particularly called deadly nightshade. So I did a little research on deadly nightshade just to figure out, okay, why, why would anyone want to make a salve out of deadly nightshade? It's called deadly nightshade. Could we also just just take a minute to say that kids, you should not try these at home. <laughs> you do, I don't do think not. you can get them. You can't cultivate them in the United States. It's illegal to cultivate them here and about a dozen other countries. But just You'd in have... case, just oh. in case, let us not try this at home, kids. 
it well it turns out that the properties of deadly nightshade when they're separated they're used uh, in a lot of medical processes uh, in fact atropine which is a poison and in fact is one of the most poisonous parts of deadly nightshade uh, the gist here is that it, it affects your vagus nerve and your vagus nerve controls a lot of your automatic responses like the beat of your heart or your ability to sweat in response to your environment. So when you take this medication, it can cause your heart to beat out of your chest, or depending on the dose, it can actually cause it to slow down. And too much of it can just straight up put you into a coma and potentially paralyze you and kill you. That, that's really the end result. But that the drug itself is, you you can find in nearly every cardiac emergency room because they'll use it in order to to bring down a heart attack victim from having a heart attack. It actually relaxes the nerves that control that. So it is really a life-saving drug if used appropriately. But here's the thing, though. Again, why would you create a salve, usually done from the berries, of deadly nightshade, and then ride that? We have a couple other, couple other parts of this. Uh, but the main drug, the one that's really going to knock you out and is going to cause you to see stuff potentially for days, we're talking about hallucinations, right, is uh, scopolamine. Strangely enough, is also used to prevent vomiting and motion sickness. So it is used in medicine today. And again, all of these parts have been separated out and studied pretty intensely because it is a very powerful and toxic plant. But here's the thing. The atropine, the hyacinamine, they're not brought into your body through the skin. But scapolamine, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is readily absorbed through the skin. If you were going on a trip, they would prescribe an element of belladonna in order to keep you from vomiting. But enough of that will cause you to hallucinate, potentially for days. So you could, technically speaking, make a salve. And this is, this is where it's kind of interesting, because when you look up at the ingredients and, and how they're used today, I say ingredients, but but really the alkaloids that are found within the plant. And then you look at how, through sort of legend and lore, it was applied potentially to broom handles and potentially where it would interact with a person. It would interact with a woman in areas where there's an enormous amount of blood flow. And one of those three chemicals could be absorbed and your skin acts as that protective barrier against the other chemicals. So possibly the salve would have been far less toxic because the most toxic elements were being prevented from passing through, whereas the one that would cause the hallucinations could pass through. And I think that's just kind of an interesting play on where you can kind of confirm that something that is in lore might have actually had a real function, both in in producing the effect of getting high, not high as in like flying, but high as in like hallucinating, spiritual hallucinations, if you will, uh, while at the same time, the way that it was taken prevented the person from getting too toxic with the alkaloids that are present. I've never personally known anyone to fly that way with their broom. I would not recommend it to anyone. No. I have heard um, that people will use their brooms or their basams as um, a sort of a meditation focus for astral projecting um, and flying in that sense. I personally have not. Um, that is not what I use the Bassam for, but I do think it is an interesting part of the story of the broom that it is an object for flying and that there are these stories of these sort of uh, flying ointments that witches use to help them 
fly. Mm-hmm. I do think there is a long history of those stories. I don't know how true they are. I personally would not choose to to try some of that. But yeah, it it is a really fascinating idea for why witches are so often seen as flying on their brooms. I don't I don't think it's unusual in a number of faiths to to implement something that is going to provide a, a spiritual kick, be it through the use of mushrooms or different types of weed. Uh, again, I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but it's certainly not unusual. A lot of faiths do it. It feels like peer pressure. The other faiths are doing it, <laughs> but it's not unusual. It, it's not unusual to for people to go, wow, this really brings me into this uber spiritual state not knowing anything about how medicine works or how, you know, the toxicity of certain uh, herbs and, and berries and fruits and whatnot affect our bodies, that when you have an effect that is incredibly dramatic and you're kind of able to hone it, then it's almost really like bringing out the spiritual side of yourself and putting that into sort of kickstart. Now we recognize, oh, they were taking drugs in order to get their spiritual high. And we kind of frown on that today. But back then... I. That could have very easily been like, that plant has spiritual properties, and and consuming it translates that spiritual property into myself. Well, and I I do know that people still make flying ointments. I don't know what goes into those flying ointments. I, I, again, I, I have never done that sort of work, so I don't have anything to recommend, particularly on that side of things. But I'm sure if you wanted to talk to, you know, one of your local herbalists, they could probably recommend some things that would be uh, a little safer these days um, yeah. and and may help you along similar lines. Again, kids, don't try this at home without someone who actually knows what they're doing. Right, right. And, and more importantly, you know, even if, even if you do seek out somebody's advice, get educated yourself. A lot of the stuff that's out there is not deemed medicine, doesn't have the same regulatory effects, doesn't have the same kind of controls that are intended to keep people safe. And it's often hard to know whether what you're taking is uh, what kind of purity it has, what kind of uh, intensity it might have, what kind of percentage of the, the different alkaloids and, and uh, other such chemical goodies that are packaged up in whatever it is that you're taking. Uh, it can be sometimes difficult to gauge that because it's not government control. It's not something that, that is tested. So yeah, with caution and with self-education. So are there any uses for the Bassam that would be used other than just cleaning bad energy from the home or, or cleaning your ritual space? So there, there are a lot of things, right? One of the things I think most people think of in terms of the broom is marriage rites. Um, you know, people jump the broom and there, there's a lot of different history around jumping the broom. In some places, jumping the broom was not quite a socially accepted form of marriage. Um, in other places, it was. It was kind of like eloping. Somebody it said, was. oh, they, they went and jumped the broom. It meant that they totally avoided the, the social witnessing, per se, and decided to go do their own thing. Well, and in some areas of the world, too, um, in, in England, for one, you would jump the broom while you were waiting for the person who could officially marry you to show up, right? Like, you know, for people who lived out in the middle of nowhere and didn't have access to, you know, your, your pastor, your priest, or whoever, you would jump the broom, and it was an, a socially acceptable form of a, a wedding, essentially, without actually having the wedding. Um, you jumped the broom, your children were legitimate, um, you were accepted as a husband and wife, you were going to have that official wedding somewhere down the road, 
But for now, you know, it was good enough. And to this day, a lot of people jumped the broom. I did. Did you? That's really yeah, cool. Absolutely. At our wedding ritual, uh, we, you know, of course had family and friends and whatnot, but uh, we jumped a, a broom and a sword. That's awesome. The wedding ceremonies I have performed, you jump a broom and you jump a cauldron and you jump a bonfire. So there's a lot of jumping involved. <laughs> we really like to emphasize that that jumping. But again, you know, the, the broom is uh, very much a, a symbol of fertility, right? So you're jumping a broom with your new partner. You're encouraging fertility, I, I would say, not just in, in the physical sense, right, in terms of children, but in terms of the relationship and where the relationship is going to go and that it's going to be a long-lasting relationship. There's a lot of stories around the broom them in terms of relationships. Once you have jumped the broom, if you want children, you put the broom over your bed, inviting fertility into your bed. If you don't want children, you put the broom under your bed. And it's like you're putting it away, out of sight, out of you're mind. You're hiding it. Oh, that's nice. All right. You're I hiding see. it. You're hiding it. Got um, it. Again, All right. Again, kids, please use your regular forms of birth control. But, you know, again, there's there's all of this fertility symbolism inherent in the broom. If you're having marital difficulties, you're supposed to talk to your broom and the broom can essentially take it away from you. There's also that sense of if you're fighting with your spouse, you can use your broom to sweep the house out. Oh, I thought you were going to say hit your spouse with the broom, but go on. No, no, I would. Please let's not beat them with the broom. Let's let's not encourage domestic abuse. Feels very much like Tom and Jerry, where the the (laughs) lady runs around the house beating Tom with whatever she had. Well, there's that that the turn of phrase. You're you're flying off the 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 handle. Flying off the handle, right? (laughs) I didn't even put that together, but yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So yeah. So the the broom is um, definitely this this symbol of your relationship, and. The you know you're supposed to treat your broom respectfully. Um, there's this idea that if you treat it badly, it will actually break your relationship up. Especially if it's the broom that you jumped for your wedding that you associate with your relationship, you need to treat it well. Then there was also there are a couple that are more like if you lay the the broom carelessly on the bed, you're not gonna. That's actually gonna like break your fertility. I don't know why this insults the broom so much that you can no longer have children, but supposedly if a young woman carelessly throws the broom on the bed, you're not going to have children. Wow, um, that's so odd. But I mean, over the bed, fine. On the bed? Apparently not so good. Um, And then there's another one that's like, if a young woman accidentally stepped over the broom by herself before she was married, she wasn't going to get married. That was like cursing her. To not getting married. So it's like doing again, doing it too far in advance, kind of like what is it called when you tell somebody not to say something, jinxing it? Is yeah. That it? Is that is that you're only supposed to step over the broom if it's with somebody else? If you step over the broom without someone else, you've jinxed yourself. Pretty much. I get it. Again, there are a lot of these types of superstitions. Um, and then the other, I think, big one in terms of the home specifically is that there's a lot of like house blessings that go on with the broom. Um, it's people handle it a little differently. I always do it on New Year's Day. I sweep salt through my house. You sweep salt through your house and you sweep it out your front door and it's kind of getting rid of any of the bad stuff from the old year and welcoming in the new year. 
Some people do that in May. Some people do it in the summer. I always do it on New Year's Day, January 1st. That's that's my personal. Why salt? Um, so salt, uh, it's it's a grounding agent. It's a neutralizer. It's an absorber. It's an, it's absorber. an absorber. Yeah. Like yeah. If, if you didn't know anything about salt, what, what you did know was that after a while, salt will get sticky and will start to clump together. And it could be assumed that it's it's pulling something out of the air and that you would assume then, well, maybe it's pulling the bad stuff out of the air, which, you know, it's just the salt is attracting moisture, right? It's, it's uh, So the idea that you could sprinkle salt and that salt has sort of this history of not only having great value, salt was used as money once upon a time, hence the phrase worth your weight in salt, but that salt itself from a spiritual perspective is a, is a is a purifying element in that it'll absorb what's considered to be bad, which again, back in the day, they could look at salt and over time they could say, oh, ooh, that changed. Something got sucked into the salt. Yeah. So, um, so you have like that aspect, but then you also, again, have the broom sweeping things out of your house, you mm-hmm. know, gathering up the filth, sweeping it out of your house. There are a lot of things you can do with your broom. <laughs> Uh, on another note about salt, and I think we'll have like a complete episode about salt just in and of itself, uh, was the fact that it's used in, in brining and in packing meat and preserving, and that they knew that the bad spirits would attack meat if it wasn't in salt, but that if they packed meat in salt, the bad spirits couldn't get to it, and thus the meat would stay okay. Now, of course, we know that that's meat spoiling. We're talking about bacteria, and that when you pack meat in salt, what you're doing is you are you are creating a very inhospitable place for bacteria that would otherwise munch on your meat. But they didn't know that back then. So they just assumed that it was a a protective substance. So again, awesome for sprinkling around in your house uh, and and through this ritual, brooming it out the door. There were and are also some traditions of um, essentially calling down rain when you need it with your broom. You go outside with your broom and essentially sweep the sky to bring the rain down to encourage that that fertility um, from that side of things. So still a lot of agricultural magic, I would say, associated with the broom, as well as sort of the home and hearth sort of magic. Um, Again, I think it's a really fascinating tool. I do too. I think we've come to near the end of the show, but what I would like to end off with is a last question, which is, given the stresses that we've got today, given uh, the fact that a lot of people are out of work due to the COVID virus that's been going on, and just in general, as life gets stressful, can you provide a functional ritual that a person might find helpful in dealing with today's situations? So I've, I've weathered all of this on my own right? I've been here by myself. Well, I've got my cats, I guess. We, we can't discount the kitties. You know, one of the things I, I have done through all this, and I think a lot of people have done, is, is just the act of cleaning your home, right? It's been, it's, it hasn't just been a spring cleaning this year. Um, it, it's been a, a full, like, life cleansing couple of months, right? Even for the people I know who ha- are at home with families and, and have a lot of, uh, people around, you know, there's been a lot of inner reflection and going through closets and going through drawers and like just really cleaning things out. Um, and I think maybe this is a, a good time to to sort of incorporate that into ritual. So one of the goddesses that is is heavily associated with the broom is Baba Yaga. I don't know if you're familiar with Baba Yaga. Um, she is a Russian w- witch and 
she's kind of terrifying. She's a super terrifying figure. She's just as likely to eat you as to help you. She's a very, I'll help you if you're willing to help yourself sort of figure. And she flies in a mortar and pestle after living, well, she also lives in a house on chicken legs, which is one of my favorite things. But she carries a broom to sweep the air behind her. There's a Germanic goddess called uh, Hulda, also known as Hala or Hulda. Um, she has, um, she's a very fairy tale figure. Like she gets kind of turned into almost a mother goose kind of figure down, down along the years. Um, but she's also very much a, I'll help you if you're willing to help yourself sort of goddess. And both goddesses are, are figures that people sort of turn to when they have no one else to go to. So for myself personally, this is where I might call upon one of them to say, you know, help me get through this. You know, I, I did another podcast, a uh, mini podcast here last week uh, on creating a honey jar. Um, like this is the sort of time to really go through your life and decide what you don't need anymore and to think about what you really want to bring into it. And I think using your broom and sort of these sorts of rituals too, for me, is always a very calming thing. My tradition has a couple different sweeping songs that we sing. My personal favorite, though, and part of it is that I'm a terrible singer, I really like the the old Mother Goose rhyme, the old woman tossed up in a basket. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Vaguely familiar. So I would, at this point, if I were doing ritual with, with my old coven, or even on my own, I guess, I would really focus on the sweeping aspect. And the music associated, um, the story surrounding it, to call on, on these figures that are associated with these things to help me really process everything that's going on right now. I, I feel like this is a really long-winded answer <laughs> to your question, but I think we're going through some really difficult times, and why why shouldn't you just talk to your broom about it, you know? Yeah. Again, like, there's a simple answer right there. Talk to your broom. Really use this time to work on that relationship with your broom. Use the broom to sweep things out of your life that you don't need to be there anymore. I think it would be a really helpful way, too, to process the fact that the old world that we knew is probably gone forever, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very different world that we're walking into now. There's, I think, a lot of grief right now for the things that we are missing or that we have lost or that we won't have for a very long time again. Use your broom. Use your broom. Yeah. I would I would second that in that, you know, while you're at home, it's very easy for the home to kind of get lost in the mess. And very easy to not want to reset it. But the fact of the matter is is that your home is kind of a reflection of how you feel on the inside. Uh if your home is not in in clean order, it's difficult to feel clean about the place you reside. It's difficult to feel clean internally and feel organized. It's a bit like uh, when I'm at work, I, I need a clean desk in order to sort of reset my focus. And if it's not clean, uh, I don't I don't feel organized mentally. I guess is the best way to put it. But if I had to recommend any kind of sort of ritual work, any any, any functional ritual work while you're indoors, it would be that if when you start cleaning, be it with your regular mop and broom or with your spiritual broom, it would be to turn on some music and dance a little bit. Make that broom your partner because you kind of need the joy. It's one of the reasons why light is brought into the home 
during the darkest part of our seasons because we really need to light our own homes. And whatever you can do to, to have fun, to, to bring in uh, a good energy or to lighten your day, that's, that's it, every little bit counts. Every little bit helps. So when you go to clean, crank up the music and dance with your broom while you're sweeping. And it, that's not really a ritual, but I guarantee you that after you're done, you're going to feel better. And you will felt kind of silly, but it's fun. So do that. I totally agree. And, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about through a lot of this is that I feel like this has been so hard because we're in this time of year where there is supposed to be so much light and joy and celebration. And this year, it's it's almost like the year has been flipped. And we're in this really dark period where, like, we can't have, you know, the, the joy and celebration that summer usually brings to us. So I, I definitely like that recommendation. I think anything you can find right now to, to bring some of that back into your life is really important. And let's face it, cleaning has to be done. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's something you, you really can't ignore. All right. Well, I think we've reached the, uh, I think that we've reached the end of the broom. Can I, can I close out yeah. with the old woman tossed up in a basket? Yes, please do. Because it's one of my favorites. It brings me a lot of joy. Um, there are different versions of this out here. Uh, the first recorded version was in early 1500s Ireland, I believe. And it is a, a mother goose rhyme these days, but I like it a lot. There was an old woman tossed up in a basket, 99 miles beyond the moon. Under one arm, she carried a basket, and under the other, she carried a broom. Old woman, old woman, old woman, cried I. Oh, whither, oh, whither, oh, whither so high? I'm going to sweep the cobwebs beyond the sky, but I'll be back with you by and by. Oh, that's cool. And I like to use that as my sweeping uh, rhyme song, whatever you'll call it, when I'm sweeping circle, because it brings me a lot of joy. <laughs> that is super cool. All right, I want to I wanna give a shout out to Robert and Kitty, Elsa, Ashley, Brandon, Catherine, and Lana for pitching us some questions. Super appreciated. But uh, otherwise, until our next episode, this is Reverend Wade. And this is your librarian and witch, Cassandra. And this is Witchcraft Deconstructed. Thanks for listening.